Well, uh, good morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we're going to carry on in the Beatitudes given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the New Testament, we find three big metaphors for the Christian life, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Each gives us a picture of diligence and exertion and effort. Christian life is never likened to a walk in the park or a vacation. Instead, life before the kingdom comes will be one of struggle. And oftentimes that struggle is directed against ourselves. We must constantly battle the old self as we seek to put off sin, put on righteousness. If we're going to grow, serious spiritual sweat is required. You think about the soldier who fights or the athlete who competes or the farmer who toils. What drives them to work so hard, to sacrifice so much? You might say duty is involved, and there's some virtue in that and just fulfilling your obligations, but duty will only take you so far. The ones who truly achieve their goals are driven most by desire, that they do what they do because they want to. They're driven by passion and a longing for a certain outcome. You have a soldier who desperately wants to achieve victory and an athlete who desperately wants to win, a farmer who desperately wants a harvest. And it's this strong, intense desire that enables them to persevere through hardship and reach their goals. And this too must characterize Christian living. There are some Christians who might be driven by duty, but let's be real. How far can you really get in something if your heart is not in it? And the Lord's only pleased if your heart is in it. You also only find lasting success in Christian living when you're driven by desire. The most stable, fruitful, and effective Christians are those who do what they do. They live this Christian life out of a deep desire to know Christ, to follow him, to live like him. I firmly believe this is such an important truth to grasp. An inner longing for the things of God must be behind all that we do. And this is why I wanted us to return to the fourth beatitude here in Matthew chapter 5 and consider it again because Christ teaches us that God's favor, his blessing, belongs to those who have this hunger, this desire for him and his righteousness. Our thoughts are going to be focused on verse 6, the fourth beatitude once again, where Christ says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the hungry. Now, of late, we've been going through the Beatitudes one by one, taking our time. Last Sunday, we already covered this verse. We covered the fourth Beatitude and what Jesus says about it. But we did so from the perspective of, of salvation righteousness. And today, I want, to, I want us to consider it again from the perspective of ongoing practical righteousness. Because what Jesus says here includes both. And I want to explain that to you just for a minute here. We found these Beatitudes, they have to be interpreted. These are short and enigmatic sayings. And Christ uses words that can have multiple meanings, so we, we must interpret them. And thus far, we've made the case that Jesus is giving us here spiritual characteristics of those who belong to his kingdom. And accordingly, we've asserted that the first four Beatitudes, verses 3 through 6, They mostly deal with entrance into that kingdom. 
And it starts with you becoming poor in spirit, where you see your sin before God. You're, you're broken by your sin debt before a holy God. And that in turn leads you to mourn. You, you grieve over the weight of your sin, its consequences. This is confession and contrition, both of which are fundamental elements of true repentance. This leads to third, meekness. That's where your rebellious spirit before God is broken and replaced with a submissive spirit. You're broken. You know you have nothing to give. You have no righteousness of your own to offer, but you've come to see Christ. This leads you to the place of true faith where you you cry out for him. You long now for him, for his righteousness, which he has, which only he can give. So you seek him, you, you cry out to him. This really is the path of salvation in a nutshell. And this is why we say the first four Beatitudes really lead you into the kingdom. This is the beginning of what it means to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You must first belong to the Lord. Now, this isn't the end of it, though. Now, as Christians, everything that's true of us at the moment of salvation must continue to be true of us throughout the Christian life. So in other words, not just at the moment of salvation, but thereafter, we are still to be poor in spirit. And those who mourn, we are to be meek. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's an ongoing sense to these beatitudes as well. And so when you look again at verse 6, this fourth beatitudes, uh, beatitude rather, we are fully satisfied with Christ's righteousness at the moment of salvation. At the same time, there's another sense in which, we, in which we must continue to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, to see it displayed in our lives. And that's what I want us to dwell on this morning, that second aspect. There's a vital sense where even after we're saved, after we're made righteous in Christ, we must still long to see his righteousness now come out of our lives. There should be an intense longing to see the righteousness he planted in us come out and bear fruit. This is, this is a huge deal. It's often poorly understood. And worse yet, it seems very few Christians have this intense longing to see Christ's righteousness come out of their lives. Our Christian culture today, in much confusion, has conflated together this longing for true righteousness with legalism. Right, that the Christian who actually has a zeal for the Lord and who wants to live righteously is just immediately written off as a legalist or an extremist. Now, granted, we must reject legalism, but there's a way of doing that without getting rid of a genuine hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness in our lives. And this is why I wanted us to return to this fourth beatitude one more time. But this time, considering it from its ongoing perspective. You look at verse 6, hunger and thirst. They are present active participles after all, which just means that the Christ intends this longing to be ongoing. This isn't a continual hunger. This is a continual thirst. When a person enters the kingdom by faith in Christ, he is made righteous in position. His need for righteousness is satisfied, but a hunger remains because now he longs to see the image of Christ come out in his daily life. He has a new goal, 
So like this soldier, he desperately wants victory over sin in his life. And like the athlete, he desperately wants to finish the race of faith, which he started. And like the farmer, he desperately wants fruit, a harvest of good deeds to the glory of God. And what drives these goals now is desire. He seeks after this righteous living, not out of duty or obligation or tradition, but because he loves his Lord. He wants to follow him. He hungers. He thirsts for it. This must characterize all of us in the church. If we are going to have successful, impactful, worshipful Christian lives. So we're back this morning really for a second look at the same verse, really more of a reflection, but I just want us to explore the necessary desire for practical righteousness all Christians must have. That's what we're going to do. We're going to explore the necessary desire for practical righteousness that all Christians must have. We'll do so along the lines of of three questions to help kind of frame our discussion. And so the first is this, what is practical righteousness? I want to make sure you understand what we're talking about here fully. And first, what is practical righteousness? What what do we mean by that? Righteousness is a huge concept in scripture. Overall, it's just talking about conformity to a standard. And we're obviously going to be talking about God's standard. So to be righteous, to be right with God means to perfectly conform to his standard. Now we learned last time the Jews mistakenly believed that you could attain that righteousness by keeping the law. Or just, just obey the commands. But as we learned that that doesn't work because for one, I mean, God's standard is perfect righteousness. And nobody perfectly conforms to God's standard. Not even close. We are unrighteous. We're all sinners. And two, most of the Jews, they're actually just guilty of self-righteousness. They were just going through the motions of obedience, but their heart wasn't in it. Their heart was far from God. And so even their supposed deeds of righteousness were disqualified before the Lord. You think of the analogy I gave you last time of people climbing a mountain. If all these people and they're climbing the mountain of self-righteousness because they've been led to believe that the door into the kingdom is at the top of this mountain and they get higher up. Those who are serious, they get pretty high up there. They start to feel pretty good about themselves. I mean, surely God would accept them I mean, look how much better they are than all those people down at the bottom of the mountain. Look at all those sinners down there, but they're getting pretty high up there. But the problem is that this mountain doesn't actually lead to heaven. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. We're all unrighteous before God. The first three Beatitudes open your eyes to that fact. When you come to that realization that you're not actually on the road to heaven, that all that you're doing to try and earn God's favor, it all counts for nothing. You've been deceived this whole time. That realization sends you tumbling down the mountain. You you fall off this mountain entirely. You tumble all the way down into this valley of despair. You despair over your unrighteousness and the judgment that awaits you. Realizing you have, what can you do? You have nothing. You're made meek, knowing that you you can't solve this problem yourself. You, You can't ever hike your way up to heaven. 
You can't solve your unrighteousness problem. But it's not a bad place to be down in that valley, as we noted last time. Because in reality, the only door into the kingdom is found at the very bottom of that valley. Since I brought this up last week, the Puritans term this the valley of vision. Because only when you fall down into the depths of your own sin before God, only then does the glory of Christ truly shine. You can actually see him for who he is and what he did. And you find the true path of salvation. It's reflected beautifully in the seminal prayer titled the Valley of Vision from the Puritans. And it actually echoes the Beatitudes. Since I referenced it last time, let me read you an excerpt of this hundreds year year old uh, prayer from the Puritans. It says this, quote, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley, End quote. You see, it's true that only down in that valley when you've been broken by your sin and unworthiness do you, do you see the worthiness of Christ. You see him as, as the only savior. You see him for who he is. God made, made man in the flesh. You see him for what he has done, where he died on the cross. He paid for your sins and he rose from the dead. And now to be saved, you, you simply go to him by faith and faith alone. And when you think about it, faith is, is the perfect anti-work. It's the opposite of self-righteousness. Faith it starts with the admission that well, you're not righteous. You have nothing to bring. You have nothing to de- earn. You, you don't deserve this gift of salvation. You confess your unworthiness and you just fall down. You beg, you plead for God's mercy through Christ the Savior. But the good news is that God promises to give that mercy to all who genuinely seek him. And the term for this, for those then who believe, is imputed righteousness. The Lord clothes you with robes of righteousness as we sang this morning. You and I, we're not righteous. We're not even close to being in perfect conformity to God's standard, but Jesus is, and he gives you his right standing with God. He'll give that to you as a free gift. We access that by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Romans 4, 5, it says, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's what we need, faith. Christ's righteousness is credited to us by faith. So this is our initial salvation. It's a legal declaration where God, who's a just judge, he declares us, not guilty because Jesus took away all our sin. And then he declares us righteous because Jesus gave us his righteousness. 
This is positional righteousness, imputed righteousness. And this is how we're actually saved. In Colossians 1.13, we are once for all transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But then what happens next? And if we, if we can take the analogy we made and press it a little further, after we abandon the mountain of self-righteousness, we find the valley of despair. But then we find that the door to the kingdom, we enter it by faith. We're saved. But immediately thereafter, the Lord tells us something. We, we find a second mountain. There is now a second mountain in the kingdom of Christ. And the Lord tells us, start climbing. As we said before, the Christian life is not one of complacency, but pursuit. We're not given a license to sin or, or do as we please. We don't even want that. But the Lord Jesus tells us now, as soon as we walk through those doors, now that we are his disciples, he tells us to follow him, to live like him, to see his image progressively uh, coming out in our, uh, in our lives, reflected in our lives. We're told just to get busy climbing after his righteousness. The term for this is not imputed righteousness, but imparted righteousness. This is not positional righteousness. This is practical righteousness where you're just, you're living it out. And God's design for the Christian walk is that we would hunger and thirst for this righteousness as well to actually live righteously. Let's take that a little bit further. I want to teach you a little bit more on this practical righteousness. You know, like as Christians, you should have experienced this. We, we live in this in-between state, the already and the not yet, right? And in one sense, we're already saved. But in another sense, we're not yet saved. We're already justified, but we're not yet glorified. We're already perfect in position, but we're not yet perfect in practice. We're saved, but we're still sinners. You, you should have experienced this tension built into the Christian life. You've sensed this inconsistency within you. If I were to ask you right now, if, you, if you're here and you profess to be a Christian, I ask you, are you righteous? What would you say? The right answer for a Christian would be yes and no at the same time. Yes, I am righteous because Jesus is, and I am counted in him by faith. That's a true legal declaration God has made of us who are in him. But at the same time, no, I'm, I'm not righteous. In my daily practice, I still sin. I fall short. I don't perfectly conform to his standard. And so there's this disconnect. Now, look, the Lord knows this. It is his will for us to live in this tension right now. Look, he could have very easily designed his salvation such that when a person believes in Jesus, they just die on the spot. They're translated to heaven, never to sin again. They're just instantly glorified. He could have done that. And it might happen to a few people. But we know that's largely not his will. No, but rather the Lord is uniquely glorified when after that justification, his people choose to live righteously. When they Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness. It's Ephesians 4.24. And when God's people bear much fruit and when they do it just because they love him. 
that both magnifies the name of God and it testifies to the power of the gospel that other people might see and believe. And so again, as soon as we become Christians, the Lord tells us, start climbing. Start climbing the mountain of his righteousness. The goal is not to save ourselves. We're already saved. We're already in this kingdom. The goal is not to make ourselves righteous. He's already given us righteousness as a gift. No, the goal is just to see the righteousness he worked into us come out in the form of fruit. We are to work out the salvation he worked in. And this teaching is all over scripture. In Ephesians 5.1 tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children. And then as we read this morning, verse 7 of Ephesians 5, it says, do not be partakers with the sons of disobedience. We're children of God now. We're not the sons of disobedience any longer. It says in verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so he says, so walk as children of the light. And then it says, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness. This is who you are now. You're, you're a child of the light, a son of God. So now live like it. Bear fruit in righteousness. First Timothy 6.11 tells us to flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. First Peter 4, or First Peter 1, 14 through 16, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33, we're told to seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness. And so you put, put it all together. Practical righteousness is just the calling that the Lord has placed on us when we come to salvation to live like him, to be like him, to pursue Christ likeness. He saved us by giving us his right standing with God, his righteousness. But now we're, we're to live that out. And this must be the defining mark of any true Christian. All right, that, that's enough on that first question. Let's, let's add a second question here and keep going. A second question, what is the measure of practical righteousness? What is the measure of practical righteousness? And, and the first answer should be obvious. Jesus tells us it is fruit. And by fruit, we mean deeds of righteousness. John 15, 8, Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's not how we're made disciples, but living righteously is how we are displayed as disciples. The one who walks in obedience to the will of the Lord demonstrates that he has salvation. And Jesus says basically the same thing later in the Sermon on the Mount. Look down in Matthew 7, in verse 17, he says, for example, every good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit, right? The fruit reflects the nature of the tree. How do you tell a true believer from a false believer? Well, a true believer is going to bear good fruit. You will know them by their fruits, he says. It's, it's pretty simple. And further on, though, in that chapter, Jesus even addresses people 
They call him Lord. They claim Jesus is their Lord. They, they claim to believe in him, but talk is cheap. Anyone can say that. These people actually get barred from the kingdom. They're turned away. And why? Well known, Matthew seven twenty three. Christ declares to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or unrighteousness. The word lawless, anomia in Greek, it's, it's the functional opposite of righteousness. That they didn't keep the law, they didn't obey the Lord, they did not practice righteousness. And again, that's not how you're saved. But the practice of righteousness is the proof positive that when you call Jesus Lord, you actually mean it. Right? Anyone can call him Lord, but the one who means it is the one who then obeys him. The practice of righteousness shows that you have true saving faith residing in your heart. Now, look, none of us perfectly practices righteousness after salvation. But we're talking about the person who's, by and large, walking in the light. The character and the direction of their life is Christ's righteousness. And yes, at times they stumble back into the darkness. But this person always... Uh, repents and returns. This is just what it's like to climb the mountain of Christ-likeness. We're going to fall and stumble many times, but the true disciple will repent, will return to the climb over and over again because he loves Christ more than his sin at the end of the day. It's a different story, though, for those who are still walking in the darkness. And that means the character and the direction of their life is still unrighteousness. They live in sin without repentance. They, they just demonstrate Jesus is not really their Lord. And they're proving that they're still in the kingdom of darkness. So you have to ask yourself, what about you? Are you walking in the light by and large or, or not? What would the Lord say of your life if he had to evaluate you? Because he will. We're called to examine ourselves and take stock of our lives often. So what kind of fruit do you see on your tree? Do you see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you pursue righteous living? And when you fall into sin, do you repent and return? We're going to take it even further, though. We're asking here the second question. What's the measure of this practical righteousness? And the obvious outward answer is fruit, how you live. But look, there's another answer. It's another deeper answer for how you measure practical righteousness. And it is desire. Desire. Do you even want to pursue Christ? Do you want to climb this mountain? And I'll focus more on this because this really gets at the heart of the fourth beatitude. It's not about those who practice righteous per se, but those who want to. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Once again, hunger, thirst, present active participles. These are ongoing conditions, which means Jesus is including here practical righteousness. Even after coming to salvation, we need to continue to long to see his righteousness come out of our lives. So the deeper question you must ask yourself is, do you have this hunger and thirst for righteousness? 
What do you long for the most in your life? I'm like this, this is it right here. This is where it's at. I used to tell this to my college students back in the day all, all the time. I used to tell them, I don't care so much that you read your Bible and come to church as much as I care that you want to. Because if you want to, you, you'll do it by yourself. I don't have to tell you. I mean, so many of these kids are coming out of high school and they were going through the motions of Christianity out of obligation and tradition, like just their culture, their parents brought them along. But God doesn't care about any of that. They have to come to their own faith. They can't just rely on the faith of their parents. And so are they in or out? I want them to seek righteousness, but only because they want to, because they've come to see the Lord as their Lord, because they've come to love him. They want to follow him. Then I don't have to give them a bunch of rules. They're just going to follow the Lord. Otherwise, it's all futile hypocrisy. And look, it's no different for you and me today. This is not just a, a high school, college phenomena. Are you here because you want to be? Are you living the Christian life because you, you desire the Lord? There's, there's some real desire for the Lord. And it's true that whatever, uh, wherever your desires are at, your deeds will follow. And this is why Jesus pronounces his blessing, not just on the one who practices righteousness, but the one who, who wants it who hungers and thirsts for it. So the question is, do you hunger? And let me show you how you can really tell. How long can you go without the things of the Lord? How long can you go without the things of the Lord? Because a hungry person can't live long without food. And a thirsty person can't live very long without water. Desire for sustenance just consumes them. and eventually reaches a point where they just become single-minded. They have to get what they need. They will dumpster dive if they have to. That person is genuinely starving. That's the hunger Christ mentions in this beatitude, one who just can't stop till he gets what he's after. And think about this, though. Maybe this has been you. It's late at night. Dinner was a while ago, but you think to yourself, like, I'm still starving. So you go around, you poke through the pantry, you kind of shuffle through the fridge, but nothing moves you. So you just like, oh, forget it, and you just go to bed. It's never happened to you. It's, it's happened to me. But I'll tell you what, that person is not actually starving. They say they're starving, but if they were starving, they would just eat the first thing they saw. That's not actual hunger. That's not the hunger of this beatitude. This is real hunger. But how many Christians are like that? They, they say they hunger for the Lord and his righteousness, but meanwhile, their, their Bible's on the nightstand. It's just sitting there. It's like a full pantry. There's, there's a, a full spiritual meal just, just right there. But each night, they just kind of pass over it and just say, forget it. And they go to bed. And another day goes by without any spiritual food. And at some point, wouldn't you conclude that person isn't really that hungry? I mean, how long can you go without the things of the Lord in your life? We're not just talking about reading the Bible. How about seeking the Lord in prayer, interceding for others? giving thanks. How about fellowshipping with the saints at a local church and sitting under the word preached? How about serving the body and sacrificing to engage in ministry? How about evangelizing lost and sharing the gospel? How about not tolerating the remaining sin in your life, but fighting against it and pursuing holiness? At the end of the day, you don't have to convince a hungry person to eat. You don't have to give them a guilt trip 
You don't have to educate him about the nutritional value of food. You don't have to do anything. He's just starving. He will eat by himself. He will go to great lengths to eat. He will sacrifice. He will travel. It doesn't matter if there's 30 minutes of traffic to church. He'll do what he needs to do to get what he wants, what he's after, what he desires. I think the Apostle Paul best relates what it means to hunger for the Lord when he says in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ. Right? To live is Christ. Life is Christ where you, you just, you need him. You need to know him, to remember him, to praise him, to think on his gospel daily, to live in light of it, to bear the fruit of the spirit, to grow in godliness, to be filled with his word, to fellowship with his people, to pray, to sing, to tell others. I mean, the true Christian needs these things and wants these things because he died. His old life is gone. He's now, his, his new life is just Christ. Just like Colossians 3, 3 says. It says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life now. That, that's all you ultimately want. Hebrews twelve fourteen commands us to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We're told to pursue holiness or the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We're not saved by this pursuit. But the point is, the one who is saved pursues. And so are you in the climb? Do you hunger and thirst for the Lord and his righteousness? Do you have this desire? Again, not perfectly. No. Because the sad reality is seasons of spiritual sloth come and go for all of us. I mean, this mountain is steep. Life is difficult and long and distractions are plentiful. And so who among us here can say that, that they pursue the Lord with the pedal to the floor all the time? None of us. We sin, we stumble, we get distracted. We all have room to grow. But one thing is sure, you can't coast going uphill. Some level of passion for Christ-likeness is required if you're going to make any progress on this uphill climb. The one who coasts, it may be genuinely saved, but the one who eases off the gas, who gets sidetracked for long. I mean, you all know what happens when you try and coast going up a steep hill. Give it 10 seconds. Pretty soon, you're going to be going in the other direction. And so it goes for those who have become lukewarm in their faith and if I'm not mistaken, the Lord never says, blessed are the lukewarm. And to the contrary, he threatens to spit them out of his mouth. Now, at this point, I genuinely hope you're convicted. I am. I mean, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness enough? I mean, if you're here as a follower of Christ, I, I hope you sense this inconsistency in your life. It goes back to that tension in Christian living. I mean, I hope you see some fruit. But is it really as much as you want? I hope you, you have this desire for the Lord, but is it as much as you like? This can be frustrating. If you're at this point where you want to grow, you wish you hungered more. If only you could just change your desires. Well, can you? And this morning, all we're trying to do is explore the necessary desire for practical righteousness all Christians must have. And I think the most helpful thing now is to add a, a third and final question. 
How do you grow in your desire for practical righteousness? How do you get there? How do you grow in your desire for practical righteousness? Notice the question is not how do you grow in practical righteousness? How do you grow in your desire for it? Because like we said, I mean, you you fix your desires, your deeds will just follow in suit. But it's kind of a tough question. Who can change their desires? Doesn't that seem kind of impossible? It feels like they're built in. It's kind of like we're asking the question, how do you make someone hungry? How do you do that? I mean, isn't hunger just natural? Hunger just naturally occurs in any healthy person, right? And so the real issue is if your hunger is missing, that means something else has gone wrong. You need to fix that and your natural hunger will return. And it is the same spiritually. Spiritual hunger for righteousness is naturally occurring in the true believer. God plants that desire in our new heart at the new birth. You can't manufacture it. This is a God-given desire by the Spirit. That just means if this hunger is missing or if it's not thriving, something else has gone wrong. Something else is interfering with it. You need to resolve that, and you'll see that hunger return. So let's consider a few things. First, consider sin. You know, physical hunger loss is often a symptom of an underlying you know, disease or serious condition. If you just lose your hunger out of nowhere, you might have something else going on. Well, spiritual hunger loss is often a symptom of the disease of sin spreading in your life. Is there unchecked sin in your life? If you read these Beatitudes, if you find you lack this fourth Beatitude, you need to go back to the first three and embody them. There is an order to what Jesus says here. You go downstream and you expect to find rapids, but you find just a little trickle of a river. Most likely, something has happened upstream. Somewhere upstream, your spiritual vitality has been clogged or diverted. And so if your hunger and thirst for righteousness has been reduced to a trickle, I would say a place a safe bet that there's some clog in your repentance, that that sin is just being tolerated too much in your life. If you haven't learned this already, sin kills affection. Sin kills affection. And the longer you tolerate sin in your life, the more it dulls your religious affections, meaning your your fervor for the things of the Lord. I mean, you just try reading the Bible or praying while you're harboring serious sin in your life, and you should feel numb while doing it. Because you know your heart's not in it. Living in sin, it's like throwing a cup of water on a fire. It's not going to put the fire out, but each time the fire gets a little colder, a little darker, I guess, it saps the vitality of the fire. And with each cup of water, the fire gets smaller and smaller, and pretty soon there's not that much heat coming off this fire. And you wonder, like, where has your fire for the Lord gone? Maybe that you had when you first believed. What could it be that you've been dousing it with sin? You've been quenching the spirit. If that's the case, look, there's a ready and easy solution. It's just to repent. You go back to the first two Beatitudes. You see your sin all over again. You mourn over it. You take your sin seriously. You take it to the cross. And the good news is the Lord is able to breathe into that fire and rekindle it again overnight. He can do that this morning. That happens when in repentance, you just go before the Lord 
You forsake all the sin you've been clinging to, and you ask him to restore you. He promises to restore you, and he can reinvigorate that fire right now. You can regain your former zeal today if you repent. You have to add in here, though, if, if though you look at your life, you find you just have zero hunger. You've never had this hunger. This all sounds foreign to you. And meanwhile, you, you know your life. You're, you're just living in the darkness. You do have to wonder, are you spiritually alive at all? Have you even been born again? But still, the solution is the same. Repent. Call out to Jesus. Look to him as the Savior and, and cling to him. By faith, he'll bring you new life. You'll find a hunger for that which is right in your life emerge. Now, there may be a second reason why your hunger for the Lord is missing. That maybe you've spoiled your appetite by feeding on other things. Because in reality, everyone hungers. I very much doubt that you're a passionless person in life. You have strong desires. You have passions. It's just that they're probably directed at other things. Things of the world, sports, movies, cars, vacations, relationships, family, children. And it's not wrong to have passions for such things, but if they become a consuming passion, when you look to these things for meaning and fulfillment, well, it's going to siphon away your hunger for the Lord. And it may even turn into spiritual idolatry, which becomes part of that sin that quenches the spirit. And so you must examine yourself. Have you been spoiling your appetite by living for other things? And Christ will tell us later in the Sermon on the Mount that no one can serve two masters. You can only have one Lord in your life. So, so who is it? Is it Christ or is it something else? Are you living for something else? And if it is something else, then your solution is to tear down that idol. You have to knock it off the throne of your heart and restore Jesus to his rightful place. That will rekindle your religious affection, your desires. I'll add that a corollary to this spoiled appetite would be filling your mind with spiritual junk food. If you're a parent, you know this phenomenon. It's, it's right before dinner time, but the kids come around and what do they say? I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? It's like their desire for snacks is limitless. But you give in and you just, you give them a snack and then it's dinner time. And what do they say? I'm not hungry. And chances are the snack you gave them was of no nutritional value anyway. It did a good job of filling them up, but it didn't actually uh, sustain them. But so it goes with many Christians and they're they're setting their mind on things below. Or worse yet, Colossians 2.8, they've been taken captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man rather than according to Christ. Even though, Colossians 2, 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they've been captivated by the world's worldview. They've been filling their minds with the beliefs, values, and desires of the world. It has spoiled their appetite for the truth. And look, whether it's Fox News with its soap opera of politics or New Age wellness teaching or, or whatever, When you're consuming the media of the world for three hours a day and reading your Bible for three minutes a day, what do you expect? It's going to spoil your appetite. The hope here is that such a person would eventually just feel sick and stop. Because anyone who's lived on a steady diet of junk food knows after a while, you just feel sick. Your body longs for like good food. 
And likewise, you should eventually sense the vanity, the emptiness, and the error of the world's thinking. And just cut it off and return to Christ. Like Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. As you do this, you will find your desire for him grows for this Savior. He alone can satisfy the longing in your heart. And so if you're here today and you feel your, your zeal for the Lord has been lost or your flame has died down to some embers, just consider what might be quenching that flame. Get back to seeking the Lord. Start with his word. First Peter 2 verse 2 says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to your salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, that's how you're going to grow in respect to your salvation. You need this spiritual food. Get yourself in the scriptures, renew your mind, and don't settle just for a snack. Right? Just have a full meal of, of study, of meditation, of seeking the Lord in his word. And then pray. Call out to God in repentance and faith. Just, just talk to your heavenly father. He gives us this great promise to the double-minded, to the cold-hearted. That's what James 4 is all about. And he says in James 4, 8, just draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Because in reality, he didn't go anywhere. You did. You draw near to him. He says he will draw near to you. You know, the thing about this, this second mountain, the mountain of Christ's righteousness, is that we're never going to make it to the top. Not, not in this life. The Lord tells us to climb, but none of us are ever going to achieve perfect righteousness in practice in this life. We're going to die somewhere on the way up this mountain, but the Lord promises to, to carry us the rest of the way. It glorifies God, though, and as the image of Christ, he imprinted on our souls comes out in our lives. And it also glorifies him as the world sees and others come to know him as well. This is all just to our blessing because his way is the path of, of peace and hope and joy. Like he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied. They will be satisfied. I hope you've tasted and seen the Lord is good. His ways are better. I want to finish this time and wrap the discussion up. I want you to turn to Philippians 3 and finish here, just like we did last week. I want you to see a few more things in Philippians 3, though, as, as we finish. I mean, last time we considered Philippians 3, it's the perfect example of hungering for imputed righteousness, salvation righteousness. You have the Apostle Paul, who was once a Jewish Pharisee. He was fully climbing that mountain of self-righteousness. He's trying to justify himself. But then he was humbled by his sin and by Christ. He tumbled down that mountain. He learned that he has no righteousness. Only Christ does. He, he longed for it. And by God's grace, he found it in faith in Christ. And so he expresses his desire to know Christ. And verse 9, Philippians 3, 9, which is a seminal verse, his desire to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's that salvation, that imputed righteousness we gain through faith in him. And he goes on in verse 10 to express his ongoing desires. He desires, verse 10, to know him and the power of his resurrection 
the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I mean, Paul wanted to know Jesus so much, he even included his suffering. Because it's only in a place of suffering that you get to experience resurrection power. Indeed, Paul longed for his own resurrection from the dead. It's that day when he would truly be made perfect, both in position and in practice. That's what we're longing for too, right? It's glorification. But notice what he says next in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And Paul is now speaking of a believer, as a believer, but he confesses he has not already obtained it. Obtained what? Perfection. Glorification. He's hiking up a new mountain now. He's hiking up the mountain of true righteousness. But this time, in humility, he confesses he's nowhere near the top. But he, he's just pressing on to lay hold of Christ. Again, no one's making it to the top of this mountain on their own. We're going to die on the mountain. Christ will, will carry us the rest of the way. Salvation is ultimately by his grace from start to finish. But as for now, as for this, this in-between life, verse 13, it says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You can see here the language of desire. He's, he's striving, straining. He's reaching forward with, with passion. He's stretching up this mountain. He's pressing on toward this upward call. This is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now talking about practical righteousness. And Paul encourages us to climb in the same way. Verse 15, he says, let us Therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. That should catch you off guard. Didn't he just say we're not perfect in verse 12? And he uses the same Greek word. In one sense, we're perfect. In another sense, we're not perfect. Which is it? Kind of sounds like Paul is reflecting that same tension. But we are made perfect in position in Christ. But we are not yet perfect in practice. But for those who know Christ, though, he's saying we must have this attitude of striving. And verse 15 continues, he says, if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we've attained. It's a call to all believers to have this attitude of, of just pressing on in the upward call. This is hungering and striving for Christ-likeness. And if you don't have that attitude, God will show that to you. And like the horse that's not moving, God has ways of kicking the spurs and getting it to move again. Often uses the tool of, of suffering and trials to get his people moving. Often we bring them on ourselves. But I tell you, that is just God's mercy to you. If you're ever made to suffer, but it kicks you back into action as a believer, reignites the fire, that's the best thing that could ever happen to you. Far worse just to remain in your sloth and fall away. And Paul tells us of people like that in the next verse, verse 17. 
says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These were once professing believers, but clearly they're false believers, false converts. And they never had a true hunger for the Lord. And they, they tacked Jesus onto their lives for, for various reasons, but their appetite, their real appetite was always for something else. They lived for the things of this world. They worship some other God. And as soon as Christ came into conflict with their earthly desires, they abandoned him. They fell away. Those whose glory is in their shame. Look at that. I mean, doesn't that reflect our culture today? Those whose glory is in their shame. They're glorying in their unrighteousness. But far be it from us to join them. We find that only in Christ is there true glory. We find our lasting soul satisfaction in him. You must always remember this. Verse 20, verse 21 to finish. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That right there is the top of the mountain. We don't get there by ourselves. This is not something we do or earn this, this glorification. The Lord, he's going to bring us there. In a future day, his final grace and glorification, he will make us to sin no more. And that's the day we long for when we are made like Christ completely and that the hope is we will get there if we press on. He will hold on to us and preserve us. We must persevere and press on. And until then, eagerly wait for him. So don't take your eyes off of your salvation or your Savior. And that eternal blessing awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've learned this morning, those who are in Christ Jesus are those who pursue righteousness. You have a hunger and a thirst for his righteousness. So seek him. Let us have this attitude. Let us keep living by this same standard. Let us press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let us seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is our call. And let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise your name for your word how it instructs us and how you've revealed to us what you've done for us and who we now are in Christ. We're here as a church and we have one, one, one passion, it's Christ. We're here not to be entertained, but to know Christ, to lift him high and to embody him, to see his image reflected in our lives. To thank you for the glory of Christ Jesus, the one who, who saved us, paid for our sins, gave us his righteousness. As we often do, we, we pray for any who might be here who have not yet tasted and seen your goodness and your glory in the Savior, that, that they would be convicted of their sin, that they have no hope of reaching uh, glory apart from Christ. 
all of our sins sinks us, may they turn to Christ and plead for mercy. They will find it. They will find this new hunger for that which is right. And for us who have made that, that call to Christ as our Lord and Savior, Lord, we, we grow weary in this life often. Hardship, difficulty, suffering, conflict. So many things take our eyes off of Christ, the author and finisher of the faith. But I pray you reinvigorate us. Bring back into focus the Savior in this race, in this climb. We need Christ in front of us at all times, hungering and thirsting after him. Convict us to, to spend our time setting our mind on things above, not on things that are below. We ask you to, to continue to fuel the fire within us by your Holy Spirit. Keep us from, from quenching it, from, from dousing the flame. Forgive us our sins and our unrighteousness. We know we have that promise in Christ. We have all that we need. I pray you move in your people uh, to seek you. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed. You will be glorified. The world will be impacted. May that be us by your grace. For your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.